Welcome to Crimes Against Mentality, a podcast about the myriad ways mental illness has been misunderstood, mistreated, and mishandled. I'm Amanda. And I'm Tommy. And today we're talking about James Blackman. I had never never heard about this guy. Well, yeah, I guess you hadn't either. So until you told me about it or you brought it up as a topic. So how'd you hear about this? So, yeah, I had never... um, I had never heard about this guy. I found out about him by Googling. Um, <laughs> what was it? Crimes, mental illness, wrongful conviction, just to see what those keywords would bring me. And I think this is like <laughs> the third one or something. I'd heard of a few of the others, and I was like, oh, I'll click on a random link and started reading and was horrified. So, yeah. Decided, yeah. Well, yeah. I should say that when I was looking into the case a little bit more, the. The sort of the headlines that I was running into. What when did it happen? About 2019, I think it was. Um, the end happened in 2019. Yeah, yeah. That well, that yeah. Um, that sounded very familiar. Like I, I could swear I remember reading a headline about man declared innocent after 35 years in prison or something like that. Yeah. Um, and you know, related to mental illness, but. But yeah, I mean, I hadn't really looked into it, didn't really know anything about this guy. And uh, yeah, no, it's uh, yet another tragedy. Yeah, this one gets just... I have a feeling we're going to run into that a lot. Yeah, I also um, was... I've I've had some topics like, oh, somebody will tell me like, oh, you should cover this guy, so I'll make a note of it. But I was real tired of talking about old white dudes, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I wanted to find somebody else, and I did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 you know. Yeah. But um, I also tried to, to find one that wasn't based around schizophrenia, and I failed on that front, but that's okay. So we are talking about a schizophrenic again, um, and we probably think... won't. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, you finish your thoughts, sorry. I think um, a pro- we probably won't go as into it as we did in the last episode since we just covered it, but we'll still do a synopsis on what schizophrenia is. Yeah, and uh, with that in mind, I think it's not necessarily such a bad thing that we're uh, covering another uh, individual with schizophrenia because uh, we you know, talked a lot about how it presents in a lot of different ways. And I think that if you look at uh, Mr. James Blackman and uh, his uh, schizophrenic behavior. Uh, it, I mean, probably won't look a lot like what we know about James St. James. So that's true. Um, yeah. I'd so, also like uh, to point for, out oh, this is the fourth James in a row. On the fourth episode, I need to find someone that's not named James. They're all Jameses. <laughs> All right, folks, uh, if you want to not put your child through mental illness, uh, just stay away from the name James, I guess, <laughs> is uh, is what we're starting to see here. It's the only correlation, and it's 100%. So, I mean, the science and the numbers don't lie. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Mm-hmm. No Jameses. No Jameses, please. No Jameses. What were you going to say? Do you remember? Oh, no, I, I think I was just going to finish my uh, comment on... Um, is something about how schizophrenia again it's it's got a lot of different ways that it presents and it will be uh i mean i don't think there's that much bad that will happen from covering it twice in a row oh, so no, i think I, it, actually yeah. it'll be a good thing yeah okay yeah sounds 
Yes. This guy's mental illness pops up, like, pretty much immediately. So sometimes I've been covering their mental illness and, like, the actual mental illness later on. So I think let's just start off the bat by going over schizophrenia a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me just as a refresher. Over. Yeah. To my notes on schizophrenia over here. Um, so schizophrenia has, like, Positive and negative symptoms. Positive symptoms are added to a personality, whereas negative are taken away. Uh, The positive symptoms that people can experience are delusions, hallucinations, and that can be auditory, visual, um, taste, sound, all all kinds of hallucinations. Um, Disordered thinking and speech, uh, disorganized behavior, trouble concentrating in movement disorders. Movement disorders can be like even... Catatonia, where they just, like, don't know. that Like, outside influence doesn't matter to, like, what what they do. Nothing around them will influence what they're doing. Um, and then some of the negative symptoms, the ones that take away from a person, would be, like, social withdrawal, extreme apathy, lack of drive or initiative, trouble with speech, and emotional flatness. Um, Anything else on schizophrenia? So it, it can be, yeah, like you already said, um, schizophrenics can present in a lot of different ways. And these symptoms are fairly generic when you actually look into like what each one means. So some people can have, like, I think a lot of schizophrenics um, experience hallucinations, auditory hallucinations, visual. But, you know, one person can see, like, cats all over the place that don't mean them any harm, whereas another person might see a clown that is, like, whispering in their ear, I want to kill you. So, you know, it can really be different. Another person might think they're Batman. Yes. Yeah. So it's really... Schizophrenia is kind of just like a blanket term, and you just when you hear that, you don't really know what someone's going through until you hear their specific story. Uh, James also experienced, as they described it back in uh, 1983, uh, manic depressive psychosis specifically. They didn't really say, like, manic depression is another term for bipolar. Um, they didn't necessarily say he was. I think I did read, like, he both had schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. I think nowadays um, they're starting to realize that that kind of can get lumped into its own name called schizoaffective disorder. But mm-hmm. those, all those three are their own separate diagnoses, but they overlap. And ADHD often gets thrown in there as well. They all are very similar, which is yeah. interesting. Yeah. And then psychosis, like we talked about last time, is just like a detachment from reality. So that's also a fairly big term. but. I when you hear this guy's story, it sounds like he's been in a psychosis for like ten years. So yeah, yeah, he's unfortunately pretty mentally ill. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Another thing to point out, I and I'm I'm sure that this is in some way correlated to his uh, mental illnesses, but I mean, also to sort of just the way that mental illness was treated at his time. Um, he, uh, is, uh, noted as having a lower than average intelligence, um, which can correlate to these mental illnesses, but more often than not, uh, rather than being directly caused by the mental illness are caused by, uh, people's reaction to the individual experiencing the mental illness. So 
they probably weren't as well socialized or uh, cared after, uh, certainly not as well as they should have been. Um, so uh, it, again, that, ju- that, that will come into play and yes. uh, is, is sort of an important note to make as well, um, just to sort of get a bigger picture and a better understanding of what happened to this poor man. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm glad you said that. Mm-hmm. Around 6.15 a.m. on September 28, 1979, a man stabbed Helena Payton in the bathroom of Latham Hall, her dorm at St. Augustine's University in North Carolina. Her roommates heard screaming, followed by Peyton running out of the bathroom and yelling, He stabbed me! Just then, a man came out of the bathroom's other exit, walked past several students, went down the stairs, and then ran away as a security guard chased him. Peyton, who was 23, had been stabbed in the neck and was bleeding profusely, but she was conscious when she was brought to a local hospital. Just before going into surgery... She told her mother that she had been attacked in the bathroom and that she did not recognize the man who hurt her. Peyton went into a coma after surgery and died a month later. So she never woke up again, and she was never able to really give any more details. But she hadn't recognized the man in the first place. Mm -hmm. So not sure what other details she could give. But there were witnesses. Um... Witnesses described the suspect as a tall and thin black male in his 20s, clean-shaven with a short afro, wearing a dashiki-style shirt, which, I had to Google this, it's a distinctive, colorful shirt often worn by people from West Africa. I think if you look it up, you'll know exactly what it is, like, immediately. It's yeah. pretty, pretty distinctive. Mm-hmm. The police recovered such a shirt in the woods behind the dorm, spattered with bloodstains. A knife was found under a table in the dorm's first floor game room. It had also had blood stains, but there's no indication that blood typing was ever done to compare that blood with Peyton's. This is 1979. There's no DNA testing, but they didn't even check to see if the blood type was perhaps the same. Mm-hmm. Despite the police efforts, including substantial publicity and the release of sketches, the investigation stalled. At one point, detectives speculated that Peyton may not have been the intended victim, that the women in the dorm might have been involved with drugs or prostitution. And I'd like to note after that horrific statement that um, this college is historically black. So police Mm -hmm. just saying that this dorm full of women is just into drugs or prostitution? Well, I wonder how they came to that conclusion. That's racism. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Pretty obvious and, and also, pretty fucked up. Yeah, and probably why it stalled for so long, because the police probably were not dedicating all resources to this case. Mm-hmm. And then once they finally found a suspect, probably why they didn't really kind of do anything good. Didn't do, didn't follow proper procedure and just, uh, uh, this guy fits the bill close enough and, uh, it's our lucky day. We can get him to do exactly what we want. Yep. The police also appeared to have engaged a psychic who gave them a composite sketch of a possible suspect. Police questioned a man who fit that composite, but he was released after fingerprint examiners said he wasn't the source of the prints left in the bathroom. So they had fingerprints. They found a suspect. They compared the fingerprints. They're like, ah, not this guy, and they let him go. Mm-hmm. 
they did that one time. Yep. <sighs> yep. So the case, <laughs> the case went cold for four years until Raleigh police received a confidential tip that a patient at Dorothea Dix Hospital, a local psychiatric hospital, had been talking about murdering several black women, including a woman at St. Augustine's. The source was unsure of the patient's name, but thought it was possibly Bramer, Brammer, Brammer, something like that, starting with the letter B. No patient named Brammer resided at the hospital. Police instead focused on 28-year-old James Blackman, the only patient at Dorothea Dix who fit the general physical description of the suspect. Well, it starts with the B, so it's good enough. And let's go mm-hmm. back to that description real quick. Tall, thin, black male in his 20s. Yeah. That's a large portion of the population. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh. <laughs> yeah, he, his name's B, and he, he's a tall, thin, black man. Yeah, but what about this guy? Also that, but this guy. We're going with but, this one. Uh, yeah. James Blackman, who had a lengthy history of mental illness and criminal behavior, had been cycling in and out of reform school, prison, and psychiatric institutions since he was 11. Almost all of that time was spent in upstate New York, although Blackman had family in North Carolina. So he was in North Carolina because he had family there, although he had spent most of his time in New York. Um, It wasn't clear when he came to North Carolina but records show that he was arrested for larceny in North Carolina at the end of 1980. So they know he was at least there at the end of 1980 when the crime initially occurred at the end of 1979. So earlier. They learned Blackman had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, manic depressive psychosis, and various other personality disorders. I couldn't get any more information than that. And just as a reminder, um, paranoid schizophrenia is not a diagnosis you can get today. Schizophrenia is its own diagnosis. Um, they used to categorize it into five different categories. Paranoid, catatonic, some others I don't remember off the top of my head. <laughs> but um, now he would be described more as like a schizophrenic with like possibly like paranoid uh, other stuff going on. Like maybe a pers- paranoid personality disorder or something else. And then, you know, manic depression is now typically referred to as bipolar, but it's still pretty interchanged. And, uh, yeah, that's my note on that. Mm-hmm. Good note, good note. Yep. Medical files described Blackman as hostile, grandiose, paranoid, and subject to powerful delusions. Grandiose, correct me if I'm wrong, I didn't look this up, but that's like um, delusions of grandeur. So that would be Essentially like, just larger than life, yeah. Yeah, so... You maybe he believes he's God, maybe he believes he communicates with God, but it's you know it's not always focused around like a religion or believing you no, can yeah. save the world, but it is like those whoa, these, dude, that's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> kind <of>. these <laughs> feelings of being somehow better or um, just like the world around you just isn't good enough for you. Uh, anything along those lines where you are just uh, cut above the rest. Yeah. And then subject to powerful delusions, um, you'll get some examples of those coming up. So I won't go over that too much. Okay. Two police detectives, James Holder and Andrew Monday, first interviewed Blackman on October 25th, 1983, four years after. 
He would be interviewed eight times and also have numerous informal conversations with the officers. At one point, Blackman was put in a lineup, but not identified by any of the students. He was never placed in custody, never given any Miranda warnings, nor told he was ever a suspect in a murder investigation. So he was, his rights were violated, and all the witnesses couldn't identify him, identify him in a lineup. Spoiler alert, mm-hmm. because he was never there. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Now, they, I mean, it, it, it was a little while later. It, it's possible that they didn't get a good look at the guy in the first place. Um, there are, you know, reasons why even if the right guy was put before them, even at the time, they might not have recognized him. Still, that, you know, the, the, that fact, I mean, that's just, that doesn't really hold up or hold a candle to the situation. It, it, it's neither here nor there, if you will. Yeah. He, I mean, there's just, his rights are violated and he's not, the, the evidence they're trying to compile against him is just, it's nothing. Yeah. During the police's conversations with Blackman, the detectives gained his trust, frequently asking him whether the officers were his friends. And he always said they were. Blackman told the officers that he could levitate, that he was telepathic, and able to control other people's actions. So there's some of his delusions, as well as some grandiosity in there as well. Mm -hmm. He believed he had powers like witchcraft, telepathy, and telekinesis. Uh, for example, Blackman claimed he, quote, called a judge to fall out of his chair. So he made the judge fall out of his chair. And then the judge retaliated by sending him to jail. He also frequently wore a Superman cape during his interviews. Um, probably plays into, like, you know, he thought he could levitate and fly and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, that right there should have just if anyone had read that uh, in the case or the trial against him i mean any sort of interview uh just should have been thrown out i mean in the case should have been thrown out against this yeah. guy because i it's so clear that this guy is just even if just he were guilty he should be able to get off by not guilty by reason of insanity so it's just why <laughs> why yeah. did this happen <laughs> yeah now, he said he had killed lots of people. He said he'd never killed anyone. He said he didn't own a dashiki-style shirt, like the one that witnesses said he had. He said he could cause earthquakes. The conversations rambled on, with the officers always trying to slowly steer black men to St. Augustine's in the morning of September 28, 1979. Blackman would often refer to himself in the second person, someone the officers referred to as, quote, the bad James Blackman, who had done bad things. It was often unclear what those bad things were, but during the interviews, the officers kept pushing Blackman to acknowledge that this bad side had been at the college and killed a student, while perhaps good Blackman stayed behind at the psychiatric hospital. Yeah. He had this whole idea where, like, Blackman did where, um, and I think actually the officers may have planted this in his head, I'm not entirely sure now that I'm thinking about it, but his soul could leave him and his soul in the, it could be like bad black men where his like, his head would stay behind good black men in the psychiatric hospital. So I think that, you know, the police officers were trying to say like, well, it's not that you did anything wrong. 
good Blackman stayed here like he should have and didn't do anything wrong, but bad James Blackman did do the bad thing. And, you know, like, they gained his trust, and he's obviously, like, very mentally ill and not very aware of what's going on around him. So he goes, yeah, yeah, that could happen. Yeah. Just and again, manipulation. Uh, the, that, ad, that admission of guilt just shouldn't hold up. And if it does, he should go to, uh, you know, a mental hospital <laughs> rather yeah. than jail. Yeah. Oh, I kind of lost my place. Okay. They told Blackman that while he may not remember visiting St. Augustine's, his body may have gone while his mind stayed behind. Oop, I skipped ahead of myself. The detectives also encouraged the delusion that Blackman's soul could get loose of his body, that this bad James committed crimes without good James's knowledge. The detectives consistently asked what bad James did at St. Augustine's, referring to bad James in the third person so as to distance good James from any wrongdoing. They insisted they believed good James and they were good James's friends. Through this manipulation, the detectives led Blackman to admitting bad James had visited St. Augustine's, had cut a girl in the bathroom on the top floor, and had buried the knife afterwards. On October 26, 1983, he accompanied the officers to the dormitory at St. Augustine's and entered the bathroom stalls. This trip wasn't recorded, but the officers said Blackman stopped at the stall where Peyton was attacked and said, this is where it happened. Holder asked him, what happened, James? Where were you? Blackman said, I was here and she was there. Blackman then went to a sink and washed his hands, saying, this is what I did. The policeman relied on these vague confessions to pursue a conviction, despite the fact that Blackman got many details of the crime wrong. The stabbing occurred at around 6.15 in the morning. When the police asked Blackman what time his body was at St. Augustine's, calling back to, the, you know, the delusion that it's, it's bad Blackman here, not good black Blackman, he responded, it's about in the evening at noon, instead of in the morning when the crime was committed. Mm-hmm. When the detectives asked how he ended Peyton's life, he responded that he either quote, choked her or gave her some kind of drugs to mess up her forever or to kill her or some poison. I said that really oddly, but (laughs) (laughs) it's okay. You got the doing. Yeah. Choking, giving her drugs, poisoning her, you know, and that's how he killed her. Despite, you know, the fact that she was stabbed multiple times in the neck. Exactly. Never (laughs) a mention of a stabbing. No. Later that day, he produced something approaching a confession stating I either he cut her in the woods somewhere where he had her or at or either up in that building again talking in like the third person because he's not really referring to himself because right now he's good James and bad bad James did all this stuff despite those statements Blackman would not be arrested until December 7th 1983 when he was charged with first degree murder so like he made these super vague confessions and the cops were clearly trying to steer him towards these super vague confessions and they got them but he still wasn't arrested until a while later and I have to think that's because the police like were like do you really think we can charge and this guy yeah yeah, yeah. And they probably had to think about it for a while Mm because it's not a great case. Yeah. I mean, 
not that these folks need defending, but maybe in their defense, they were looking for other leads and just couldn't find any. Who knows? Yeah, Uh, we could give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. I don't really feel like it, but you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's a possibility. I mean, the other side, the only other option I can think of is that they were just being lazy about it, which again is just not great. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah fuck these guys for real so from the beginning there were questions about the validity of blackman's statements to the police whether they amounted to a confession and whether they could be used against him in court on december 9th 1986 after three years in jail awaiting trial his attorney filed a motion to suppress his statements he argued that blackman had been diagnosed with schizophrenia bipolar disorder and other personality disorders His statements to the police had been made, quote, while he was probably incompetent and subject to influence and was not capable of knowing the quality of his statements or the implications. Duh. Yeah. Two days of hearings were held before Judge Wiley Bowen of Wake County Superior Court, where physicians from Dix and those representing Blackman testified about his mental condition during the time of the interviews with the police officers. Bowen denied the motion to suppress on August 31st, 1987, adopting the view of a psychiatrist at Dix who believed that Blackman, although diagnosed with an IQ below 80 and perhaps as low as 69, was a streetwise manipulator and malinger. How could anyone possibly get that idea? (sighs) I mean, from... A psychiatrist at the hospital. Yeah. From everything that we've seen about this guy, clearly he's just, he's got some delusions. You know, he just, he's not all there. How could anyone think that this is just some long con, some master plan to like uh, dredge up sympathy, especially considering the fact that a lot of his statements incriminated him without his knowledge? Yeah. Baffled. (sighs) Yeah, and he wasn't read his Miranda rights, where they're like, you know, uh, any statement you make can, or, can and will be used to you, against you in the uh, court of law. I, I butchered that a little bit. But mm-hmm. yeah, he was never oh, yeah. read those. So uh, any anything that he said to the police should have been thrown out because he was never given his Miranda rights in the first place. Right. Blech. So, so <laughs> frustrating. <laughs> and then, yeah, they they... He, he, they said he had an IQ below 80 and perhaps as low as 69, but like you said, especially depending on when they gave him that IQ test, it may be very skewed because who knows how deep in his mental illness he was at the time they administered that test. If the guy, you know, thinks that he can control earthquakes and levitate and they're trying to administer an IQ test, that's definitely going to be skewed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and I mean... I don't know. There's, uh, I I would believe that he is of lower intelligence. Um, again, I, I mean, certainly with mental illnesses, I mean that's taken into context. Uh, some of those can come off as you know just kind of hindering your ability to learn. Uh, but also, I mean, just the environment he was in, people probably didn't uh worry about his education too much you know yeah so uh again like i think just the cards were stacked against him in that right um and certainly there's also the possibility that uh he i mean 
if he was born otherwise normal, maybe he just wouldn't have been a very smart guy. Who knows? But um, yeah, I it just it, it does it, for me. It just adds to the tragedy of it, where they just found this you know uh, poor idiot who had a yeah. lot who was suffering from a lot of like uh, you know delusions. And, you know, the bipolar on top of that, that it's just yeah, he was a perfect scapegoat at the end of the day. Yeah, definitely. So on January 14th, 1988, Blackman pled guilty to second degree murder with the stipulation that he be allowed to appeal the denial of the motion to suppress. So he wanted to be allowed to deny. Or he wanted to be able to appeal that, you know, uh, that all that like all of his confessions he wanted to be able to say those should never have been able to go in there but that appeal was denied in march 1989 at the plea blackman never directly answered the question of whether he was guilty and the plea would later be described in appellate briefs as an alford plea which means allowing him to maintain a claim of innocence while acknowledging the state has sufficient evidence to convict and then he was sentenced to life in prison so he did try to plead guilty to a slightly lesser murder, but I think he wanted to give himself the option to an easier appeal later on down the road. Um, and that was denied as well. And then he was sentenced to life. So mm-hmm. that's unfortunate. Yeah. That's a word for it, certainly. Yes. I think I accidentally copied some things twice <laughs> looking <Ooh>. at. <laughs> Yep. Let's see. Give me a sec. That's why this ended up looking so long. It copied like three times. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, this is going to be a long one. Oh, that's crazy. 11 pages. <laughs> Whoa. Let's see. Here we We're coming. All right, here we go. During the next 20 years, Blackman sought assistance from North Carolina Prisoner Legal Services and the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence. No official action was taken in either effort, but in 2012, NCPLS, which has to be North Carolina Prisoner Legal Services, submitted Blackman's case to the North Carolina Innocence Inquiry Commission a state agency created in 2006 to investigate and review claims of innocence. He's been in there since 1989, and they're not even taking a look at his case until 2006. Hmm? But, but by then, there well, was a no, greater... Well, no, in 2012. The committee was oh, created yeah. in 2006, You're but right. it wasn't until 2012, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I lost over that. Thank you. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's... Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. By then, there was a greater understanding of the situations in suspects that are more most likely to produce false confessions. So the one benefit to him not blowing through all of his appeals um, too early is that now people had a greater understanding that you can probably pretty easily coerce a confession out of a severely mentally ill individual. Mm-hmm. <sighs> the commission took him a while to get there. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> The commission's investigation, which culminated in three days of hearings in November 2018, six years later, focused on several areas. First was the question of Blackman's mental illness at the time of his conversations with the police. Although the North Carolina courts had found Blackman to be competent, 
Dr. Edward Landis, a clinical psychologist who had worked extensively with prisoners, said that Blackman's delusions and hallucinations made him a problematic subject for the police. Quote, it's queer, clear from looking at the batch of documents that are, I think, just grand transcripts of those tape-recorded interviews that he told the detectives lots of information that might be factually true, but he told them lots and lots of information that was just flagrantly delusional, just craziness, end quote. Later during his testimony, Alanda said, quote again, so I'm at a little bit of a loss to know what you would deduce from a mentally ill person telling you something like, literally one of his statements was, when asked, well, what has the bad James Blackman done? Mr. Blackman replied, murders, hurricanes, and earthquakes. So if you know for sure that he can't cause hurricanes and earthquakes, murdering somebody is a possibility? People have killed one another? So murder is possible, but do you deduce from that that the one item is true and toss out the other two because you know they are the crazy ramblings of Mr. Blackman? I mean, I, that part that just from the get-go is baffling to me. I, it took them how long to get to the obvious answer here? You yeah. know? Yeah, it's 2016. Mm -hmm. He got convicted in 1989. That's insanity. Just, yeah. It's like, what, what court didn't question that? Like, yeah, but he's wearing a Superman cape on the stand, and he's talking about being able to control hurricanes and earthquakes, but also murder people. But, you know, yeah, we'll believe one out of three statements, I guess. Yeah. It's just wild. It's just wild. And it, it seems, again, just like this guy was a scapegoat. They needed an answer for the crime, couldn't find one, couldn't find a suspect uh, to fit the bill. And so they just picked one that they could just do what they wanted with. Now, I'm not against all cops. I don't think that all cops are bad. And certainly not. But this is the case of a bad cop. Two bad cops. Two yeah, lazy 100%. detectives who used a poor black man who was very mentally ill, one of the most uh, discriminated against groups in this country, and just said, yeah, good enough, let's throw him away. I'm sick of this case I'm sitting open, and, you know, my boss is breathing down my neck about it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Separately, Dr. Allison Redlick, a psychologist and expert on false confessions, testified that black men's statements to the police were filled with warning signs about their unreliability. Shouldn't take an expert, but here she is. <laughs> yep. She noted that black men had two risk factors for false confessions, mental illness and intellectual disability. Equally like, important. Again, ahead. it's just so obvious. Like, yeah. <laughs> I have no training in this. And immediately I'm like, yeah, no, this guy is just unfit to be, you know, these are just inadmissible. They, they can't be used because of the way that this guy is. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> How many times can we make that noise? I can probably make it three more times in this. Just, uh. <laughs> yep. Equally important, his statements about the crime contained many mistakes. He gave an incorrect description of the victim how she was killed, and the nature of the crime, including stating that they had had sex before the attack, Redlick also, which there was no evidence, no evidence that she was sexually assaulted at all. 
Mm-hmm. No, no, no evidence of any sex at all, consensual, consensual or non-consensual. He just threw that out there, and I, they probably used that against him, even though there was no evidence at all. Uh. Redlick also said that Blackman never provided the officers with new information. Everything he told them, they had told him first. Equally troublesome was that the police had taken Blackman to the crime scene, contaminating his statements. Monday said that was unusual. This was the first and only time he had done so in his years as an officer. <sighs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's also obvious. It's just crazy that it, they had to get an expert up there and lay it all out in order to, like, try and get his appeal to stick because once you're in the system once you're convicted it is nearly impossible to overturn your conviction even in a case like this right which is another glaring hole in our criminal system yep the commission also examined blackman's whereabouts at the time of peyton's attack While he had family in North Carolina, the earliest documentation of Blackman being in the state of North Carolina is in 1980 when he applied for disability with a Lumberton address. So, yeah, like we said earlier, uh, the crime was committed in 1979 with the earliest sign of him actually being in the state at all is 1980. The month before the crime, Blackman was arraigned in court in Binghamton, New York, on a disorderly conduct charge. The month after the attack, he was in the same court in New York when a drug possession charge was dismissed. So So basically he had an alibi for not being in the state at the time of the murder. Yeah. Yep. It's just, it's just crazy. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Like, why would this guy... Go, like, be in New York. A month later, he's committing a murder in North Carolina. And then a month later, he's back in New York. And then he comes back to North Carolina later. Like, sure, he's got family in both places, but still, that's not normal. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I bet if, I don't know, maybe if they had looked harder, they probably could have found, like, an alibi for him being in North Carolina, like, around the the crime. But he clearly didn't have any advocates for him doing the necessary work. Of course. Yeah. During the initial investigation, the police had been able to lift a fingerprint from the crime scene. While the print was not Blackman's, it had remained a mystery for many years. So they had compared it to that one guy shortly after the crime was committed, and they went, ah, it's not his print. Okay, whatever. And, you know, it clearly wasn't Blackman's. Four years later, though, I guess they didn't give a shit, and they, you know, convicted him anyway. Mm Mm-hmm. In 2013, fingerprint examiners said the source of the print was a man named James Leach who died in 2008 and had a lengthy criminal record. The commission wasn't able to conclude that Leach was involved with Peyton's death. They also weren't able to explain how his print was found in the bathroom. So they had, like, found someone who matched the print, but this was, you know, all the way in 2013, so it was really only helpful now but still. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly took him a long time to get to that point. Uh, But that could also be because the, uh, you you know, the initial investigation was handled the way that it was. Yeah. It was jack shit. Yeah. Yeah. Blackman was the final witness at the commission's hearing. 
he was now 65 years old, trying to remember events from nearly 40 years earlier. He said his mind comes and goes because of the medication, but he said he didn't kill Helena Payton. So it sounds like he's at least getting medication in prison. Yeah. Good for him on that front, at least. Mm -hmm. Lauren Freeman, the district attorney for Wake County, argued before the commission that Blackman had not proven his innocence. She said that the police officers worked hard and fairly on the case without access to modern forensic tools. Quote, where there is not clear and convincing evidence of innocence, a conviction should not be disturbed, she said. Don't dislike <laughs> this person <laughs> at I all. Mean, considering the work done on the case and the evidence now being presented in favor of his innocence, I would say that the work done to prove his innocence was handled just as fairly and, like, hard as the initial investigation. I'd say better. Much yeah, better. Yeah, so, <laughs> so by what other metric should it be measured how clear and concise the evidence of innocence is in this case? Now, sure, she had to do her job and, you know, support the district attorney. But I think in cases like this, you don't have to be just like a prosecutor because you're basically just um, a representative for the county. I, I mean, I could I don't know this. This could be just like uh, this is pure speculation. But I would imagine in an appeals case like this, you don't have to be a person sitting there going, I have a client that I have to protect and my client says this person needs to be guilty. Like that's so basically this person's hearing all of this evidence and going, well, fuck him. He's already been convicted and I don't want him to be innocent. So he's not going to be innocent. Like in my eyes, just uh, wild. I don't, I don't get it. If, If there's anyone who can correct me, like maybe she did have to take a hard stance where he's like, no, the conviction should stand. But well, I mean, she is the district attorney, right? And in this case, her client is the county. And but does so the, does the, the county but, have to say this guy's conviction stands? Or in, is she just in the event that he is allowed to walk free and cause, you know, actually goes out and commits crimes, commits murders. Uh, I mean, that's, I think that's the stance that they're taking here, right? It's like, he does not have clear evidence of innocence. And so we should not interfere with, uh, you know, his conviction. Yeah. Again, again, it's wrong in this, in this circumstance, but that's the stance that's being taken. Like that's uh, from my, from my standpoint, that's. That's the defensible stance that's being taken. Yeah, I mean, everybody has a job to do, but it's still gross. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The commission voted unanimously on November 16, 2018, that there was sufficient evidence of innocence to merit a judicial review of Blackman's case. A three-judge panel met in August 2019 for three more days of hearings and declared Blackman innocent on August 22nd, 2019 he was released from prison to stay with family members he was convicted in 1989 and released in 2019 i believe is the math on that yeah 30 years yeah 
and it just it it baffles me how long it takes these things to move through the courts because they submitted his appeal like this appeal back in 2012. Well, it went up for review in 2012, and I believe it was submitted for appeal in 2016. You said, "Yeah, that sounds right." And but still, like it didn't conclude until 2019. Like that's right, just right. it's years of these poor innocent people having to stay. And you know, I I know that's kind of just like how things move through the system as it is now. But I, it's just not right. It's, yeah, it's tragic by any by any means. You know. Yeah. So there's a quote from Blackman's attorney, Jonathan Brown, and this is the person that uh, represented him during his appeal process. Being part of the team that freed Mr. Blackman in 2019 after he spent 36 years wrongfully incarcerated. Oh, so like he's, he, before he got his trial, he was in jail for several years. So even when, yeah. yeah. Okay. After he spent 36 years wrongfully incarcerated, was one of the proudest moments of my career. Mr. Blackman was arrested during my first semester in college. The hearing that freed him happened in the first few days my daughter was in college. I am so sorry that Mr. Blackman only got to spend two and a half years in freedom, but I guess I am grateful that at least he got those two and a half years. Shortly after the hearing, a judge congratulated me and said it was an example of the system working. I am not sure how we can possibly say that a system that let an innocent man spend 36 years in prison because he suffered from mental illness can ever be called working. I also did not see the case as a sign that things had changed. Lauren Freeman's attempt to stop the conviction from being overturned shows that prosecutors still do not understand mental illness and do not truly care if individuals with mental illness, are wrongfully convicted. We still use the death penalty and life without parole to coerce people into taking pleas. And I discovered in working on Mr. Blackman's case, as well as other cases of people with mental illness, that our society does not adequately treat and care for people with severe mental illness, particularly when they are poor people of color. I have both fear and confidence that people with severe mental illness are being convicted of serious crimes today. 30 years from now, someone who is currently a freshman in college will be a middle-aged lawyer trying to get them out, arguing that people in the 2020s simply didn't understand mental illness. Maybe in the 2050s, there will finally be progress in how we treat individuals with mental illness in the criminal justice system. Maybe. Can't sum it up much better than that. Yeah. So in tw- yeah. I mean, uh, again, uh as far as we've come, there's still a long way to go. Uh his statement, uh Mr. Blackman's attorney's statement is spot on. Um the fact that he was released is a great thing. The fact that it took 36 years just overshadows it. He yeah. he spent just uh, the majority of his life not even just that's not an exaggeration. Most of his life was spent in jail, yeah, for something he didn't do. Yeah, it's it, n- nothing about that suggests anything works. You know, right? And yeah, it's so gross. When I read that part in this guy's statement, like where the judge came up and congratulated me, said it was an example of the system working. That, like, just, it made me feel so just nasty. Because, yeah, how can you think that? 
like, oh, what a, how, how ex- great an example. This guy spent 36 years in jail just because he was mentally ill and taken advantage of. That's not, no. And while I can sympathize with the judge's statement and his view of the situation, it, again, just goes to show that the view is on the wrong side of things still. You're looking at not what has been lost, but what has been gained in these situations. And you have to look at both. Yeah. You have to really see where people, like what is what is being done to people before you can start to properly address the situation and make it right. Yeah, just that's such a long amount of time. And Blackman did um, receive some compensation for his 36 years, and he did get $750,000 in state compensation. But you can't put a price on this, but that seems like a pretty fiddling amount of money for what this guy had to go through. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I mean, that's a, a lot of money, but it, seems more like a slap in the face when you look at what this guy had to go through just to get out of jail again. And I'm looking at, uh, I just did, I just did a little quick math. 750,000 divided by 36 is $20,000 a year. A year? Yeah. They paid him $20,000 a year for uh, his time in jail. Uh, Doesn't really seem like that much. Maybe that might have been a big sum of money in 1983, but uh, by, you know, 2020 standards, that's, I mean, that's not a lot. Yeah, that's well below poverty, so yikes. Certainly wouldn't be able to live anywhere in the entire country on $20,000. And sadly, that's not something that he's even going to have to worry about because just two and a half years after being released in January of 2022, he passed away due to complications of COVID-19. So, Yeah, so he got released into a pandemic on top of everything. So, I mean, can you imagine getting out of jail and having to go into, like, lockdown? Right, like, yeah, because he was released in August, and then by March, all of America was shut down. Yeah. So, yeah, he didn't even get a full year out before the pandemic started, and then he passed away due to the pandemic. Yeah, it's really sad. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm I'm sure even pandemic society is significantly more freeing than jail. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm I'm not trying to say that it is... relatable in that sense yeah 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 and i mean i'm sure he probably would have said you know if is sitting in lockdown that it beats being in jail you know but all that being said it's just a bummer you know yeah his freedom was taken away from him and he for for no reason there was no evidence against him other than the fact that he was a thin black man and you happen to be at a at an institution and he was seen as a scapegoat and that's what put him behind bars and it's now, sad. yeah he i mean he did have a criminal record who knows what might have happened in his life had he not been put away but that's kind of the point who knows 
Yeah, exactly. We'll never get to know. Yeah. Let's see. What were those? Let's see if I can find this quickly. So the, those um, things you went to court for in New York, disorderly conduct charge and a drug possession charge. Disorderly conduct. I mean, he was a black man in New York in the 1980. <laughs> that could honestly mean anything. <laughs> well, yeah. And I, I mean, on top of that, he had schizophrenia and yeah. like was uh, just of lower intelligence. Like, if there, he could have literally just been in the wrong place in the wrong time, shouting at cats who he thought stole his TV, you know, it's yeah. and, and gotten put away for that. Who, like, I didn't look into the cases. I don't really know what the, uh, what the actual circumstances were. Um, it, it could have been, it could have been something that was actually, you know, uh, a crime that needed to be punished or yeah. it could have been nothing. Yeah. But considering that, like, a month before the crime took place, he was arraigned in court on that charge, but he was never sent to jail because two months later he was, or maybe, you know, maybe it was a day, I guess I don't really know, or maybe he was fined, but it certainly couldn't have been so serious because, you know, he wasn't even in jail two months later when a drug possession charge laid against him was dismissed. Yeah. So, you know, he had two close by court cases, but one was dismissed and the other one clearly wasn't so serious that he had to be in jail for any, like, serious length of time. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and still, the moment you brush against the criminal system, it's just pretty much bad news for the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, once you're in, it's really hard to get out, especially in a situation like this where the crime didn't leave a lot of evidence. You know, if you get accused of it, sentenced for it, and there wasn't a lot of evidence to begin with, how can there possibly be evidence to prove you innocent? You know? Yeah. That's a great it's, point. Yeah. So it's a miracle and a wonderful thing that he was finally proven innocent. And that's how his story ends. Um, but, uh, you know, we just, we can't, we can't focus on that here. Unfortunately, just because of the um, length of time that he spent incarcerated for something he didn't do. He so obviously didn't do. Yeah. Uh, well, um, I think that's all I have about this case. Yeah, I thought it was going to be longer because I accidentally <laughs> copy-pasted it. I was, like, doing the final notes. I'm like, page 11? Oh, boy, I better stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, um, I think I'd that... Li- so... Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I'd say, like, maybe we, again, kind of try to tie this in to what we're doing. How do you help to prevent these things in the future? I mean, I'm not involved in the criminal justice system, so I don't know that there's anything I could necessarily do or say to help this man other than, you know, continued awareness about mental illness in general and opening up the conversation. Um, You know, like what one of these people that we talked about today said, like, how in the world can you um, take one of three statements as truth? Like, Yep, I murder people and I um, caused hurricanes and earthquakes with my mind. So it's like, well, why why was that ever let 
to go through the criminal justice system as we'll take one of those statements as, as true and the other two as false when they were said in the same sentence. We're not playing a game. We're not playing two truths and a lie or one truth and two lies. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it was just, it, there, there were so many red flags and nobody was there to help this man um, escape uh, this wrongful conviction. And, you know, I didn't get a lot, of, a lot of information on his initial trial, but he did plead guilty to second-degree murder, so it's possible that he didn't even go to trial because he just pled guilty. Um, they used the possibility of, like, hey, if you go to trial, we're going to pursue the death penalty and look at all these things we have against you. I think you really ought to just take the the second degree charge instead wouldn't wouldn't that be better probably because they knew he could get away with at least like not guilty by reason of insanity if not a full-on just a dismissal of the entire thing in the first place yeah so they just manipulated him like they had been doing since the day they met him into convicting him and putting him away for life not even like with a possibility of parole mm-hmm. but yeah it's what I really ought to say is pay attention to um, who you're voting for for the judges in your district because the judge here, Judge Wiley Bowen, um, who served until 2003 as a judge, also allowed his um, ill begotten statements in court. Like he wasn't ever read his Miranda rights, those so should have been thrown out. And instead, the judge said, nope, that's okay. We can hear them in court, which, yeah, that's pretty damning if you present it in the right light. I mean, he did say he killed her and he killed other people. So pay attention who who you vote. Don't Don't just vote for, you know, the president of your party. Make sure you're paying attention to all those other names and don't just fill them in based on your party. Do your research beforehand because the judges in your area really make a huge impact on your community at large. Very well said. Why, thank you. <laughs> what, are your, <laughs> what are your final thoughts? I mean, I was going to make that same point, too. Uh, you know, you got to pay extra special attention to the people who you put in charge of these things. Um, it's, it's very important that you find people who not only, uh, I mean, certainly we can disagree on what can be considered uh, fair uh, or like a level-headed individual, or what they focus on, and that's fine. But make sure that you know who the person that you're voting for to be put into their, you know, their office, their position, is someone that you would be confident in backing. Who, who you know, exemplifies the things that you're looking for uh, as far as you know where your vote goes. Um, again, like it's it's not something that should be overlooked. Uh, these people, again, they make huge impacts on lives, not only uh, the people who stand before them, but uh, by proxy of what they do there, it certainly affects your life. So just, again, uh, pay extra attention to that sort of thing. Uh, Not only that, but if you're feeling so inclined, become an advocate for these people. You can certainly, you know, really reach out and speak up for you know, situations that where you believe someone is being wrongfully accused or taken advantage of, maybe not even in a criminal case, but you, you see someone being taken advantage of because of their mental illness, uh, speak up, you know, just 
say something, uh, you know, get out there and help these folks who are very clearly unable to help themselves. Um, I believe, uh, I haven't done the research yet, but I think it would be worth us uh, taking the time to uh, look out for um, advocacy groups and maybe uh, just get their names out there. Maybe uh, send links to their websites and attach them to our uh, our website. And just if you want to get involved or if the people listening want to get involved, uh, let's provide them some avenues to do so so that, you know, less of these scenarios end up happening. Yeah, that's a great point. On our website right now, we do have a place where it just says get help on the header of the website. And it's just a link to a bunch of mental health resources. Um, but also there, I know of the Innocence Project, definitely stand behind it. Um, if you want a, quote, easier way to help your community, uh, just donate to them. They, you know, in James Blackman's case, they would have been a great resource. Uh, they just look at cases where um, a person should is is very clearly innocent and they help get them freed. Uh, they've helped many a person. Um, I believe they helped Ryan Ferguson who's a pretty well-known wrongful conviction. He was essentially um, put away because another person had a dream about uh, Ryan Ferguson murdering somebody. Might cover that case one day, but another podcast I really like just recently covered it, so there's got to be a buffer there. (laughs) Um, Shout out to Sinisterhood. They're the best. (laughs) They are the best. Um, You got me hooked on them now. Well, not only me, uh, Chelsea especially really likes them. Yeah, she doesn't Uh, even really like crime. I was going to say, yeah, she is not a fan of true crime. Um, Certainly doesn't like listening to creepy stuff before bed. Uh, We've been listening to Sinisterhood before bed for the last couple nights now. (laughs) They're just the best. You want to hear yeah. a real lawyer talk about lawyer stuff in these cases? Yeah, definitely give them a listen. Um, not that yeah. they need a shout out because they're a huge podcast, but <laughs> still, <laughs> they're, they're yeah, awesome. You know, every little bit helps, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe some... uh, maybe we can eventually get a tit for tat out of this. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> yeah. There was something else you said that yeah. I was gonna. Um, piggyback off of now i don't remember so oh well um well since we have the time uh you know we've gone over schizophrenia but i didn't i don't think we've really gone over bipolar disorder at all i don't really need to do a lot of research about that one so oh why not oh because i am bipolar <laughs> oh So I guess I'll just try and do a quick overview from memory. So there's generally two types of bipolar disorder, type 1 and type 2. Type 1, so like bipolar disorder is a spectrum just like every mental illness, but you you basically float between, you're on a roller coaster. The peak of the roller coaster is mania, and the the valley Valley. is, yeah, depression. And mania... um, it's very, very high up, but that doesn't mean happy. And depression is very, very, very low. So when you're at the bottom of the valley, that's like you can't get out of bed or you're looking at the closest rusty spoon to somehow kill yourself kind of depression. Like it's just desperation on both extremes. But um, there's also varying degrees. Like you can just be middle of the road feeling okay. Um, some people have like rapid cycling where they float between episodes, between the different moods, several times a day. But I think you're considered rapid cycling if you even 
swing between moods every six months, which I don't know anybody who wouldn't fall under rabbit cycling. So I think that's kind of an odd categorization. And (laughs) (laughs) oddly enough, I know a lot of people with bipolar disorder. (laughs) We just kind of flock together, I guess. Um, Yeah, I mean, not that I have any, you know, sort of research to back it up, but certainly when you experience those sorts of rapid mood swings, that are out of your control, it's going gonna, it's gonna to affect your personality, especially if it's something you've dealt with your whole life. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's probably going to be something that is maybe not obvious from the get-go, but there's certainly going to be a quirk in your personality where maybe other people who are experiencing that same, um, I guess, lifestyle, uh, you know, will pick up on it pretty quickly. So. Yeah, birds Just of a feather thought. flock together. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think mania is often portrayed as like um, when when people say they're manic or when it's described in like a bipolar setting, people think of it as like, oh, you're just so happy. Everything's fantastic. <laughs> Dead wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah. I think of it more as like hyperactive and twitchy where like you just can't focus on one thing for any second. You've got to do everything all the time and things are just flying by you. But you're also flying yeah. by things at the same time. Like sometimes just, when you I can't keep he- things under control. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes when I hear about ADHD on the more hyperactive end of of that um diagnosis, it, it kind of in, can align with mania. And ADHD yeah. and and bipolar disorder actually are like basically twin <laughs> diagnoses. <laughs> they Ironically, very, yeah, <laughs> seeing as we're siblings <laughs> and we're each diagnosed with one of those. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and ADHD is more common in men, and bipolar disorder is more common in women. Um, mm-hmm. But, also, ironically, uh, I have the uh, form of ADHD that's more commonly diagnosed in women. So, I mean, <laughs> I thought that was funny. But sorry, this is your no, moment. It's okay. No, it's not really my moment. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but mania for me, at least, is usually just like any emotion I feel. I feel it to the absolute extreme. And I definitely get the symptom of mania where I can go for days with very, very little sleep and feel perfectly fine. Um, Thanks, insomnia. Super great. Love ya. Please never mm-hmm. come back. <laughs> uh, I was gonna say. I mean, the one benefit to that would be you. You know, you know, the early days of child rearing might be a little bit easier. But yeah, uh, thankfully I'm not manic, so you know, yeah. there's that. And uh, lack of sleep exacerbates every single one of your symptoms. So even if your body doesn't feel tired, it just like it's a it's a spiral everything compounds yeah. on top of each other like <laughs> yeah start the manic well, ep- you start into hypomania which is like mania light and then you start mm-hmm. losing sleep and then it just kind of like skyrockets into me yeah yeah i i was also going to bring that up since i just kind of did like since since giving birth you've mentioned that you've kind of been a little more stable yeah which yeah. i mean is super super cool for you i'm sure i'm sure you're loving that yeah, super rare as well. I think um, I don't have any statistics to back this up other than the reactions from my psychiatrist and nurses, but most uh, bipolar people, when they're in the healthcare system, they are um, not at the greatest points, including when you're in the middle of childbirth, which, God, I can't imagine why any woman would be a little distraught while they're giving birth. But I sure leading did. up to, during, or after, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I had a lot of nurses uh, during, like, the intake who were like, um, 
did I mention this already on the podcast? I, I can't remember if this was a recent conversation I, I had with someone else. Well, we've certainly had this conversation. I cannot remember if it was on the podcast. I think it might have been. Well, I'll truncate it real quick just in case. But yeah, like when I was, you know, people all the time would be like, oh, you know, do you have anxiety or depression? I'm like, yeah, I'm bipolar. They're like, oh, my God. No way. You? But you seem so calm. And it's like, okay, <laughs> well, I mean, I'm heavily pregnant. I can't really go anywhere. Like, what, what do you expect me to be doing? Jumping jacks? Like, what do you mean I look calm? Like, are yeah. they looking at me like peeling off the skin on my thumbs because i was doing that <laughs> it's just... <laughs> right yeah it's, yeah i think and, and i mean that might attribute to the fact that like i think we, you and i maybe just our family in general have been brought up kind of like hide our anxiety um of which I we only both bring... have plenty but yeah go ahead what's that of which we both have plenty of anxiety oh, oh my god yeah <laughs> well I, I think that's just funny because um uh, one scenario I always turn back to is when I was getting my wisdom teeth pulled. Um, I didn't really feel nervous about it at all. Um, it was just, you know, a procedure that had to get done. Um, I have pretty bad teeth. So, you know, teeth are kind of a point of contention for me. But <laughs> um, I, I mean, like, I I just needed to get them pulled. It wasn't something that I was really worried about. Or so I thought. Um, the doctor... I remember when I was, uh, you know, coming out of my laughing gas induced stupor, uh, just saying something along the lines of he said, like, he's never seen someone on that much nitrous oxide still be worried. Like, he's (laughs) never seen someone so anxious about something before. And I was like, I don't even I don't don't feel anxious about this. I don't know. I I just feel like somehow (laughs) your baseline anxiety is just so. So yeah bad. yeah yeah <laughs> which you know is something that i you know am, you might have to deal with in the future or you know now but uh <laughs> yeah i mean that, that's just what when you talk about like people don't when people see you and think that you're calm i that's just what that reminds me of you know what i mean yeah. like there's no way you're bipolar you're too calm which first off fuck you for saying that yeah and second off um it that's just like i i kind of like that's how i relate to that or i feel that where it's like they just don't know what's going on <laughs> yeah i don't even know what's going on <laughs> you know props to my obgyn um she, like she actually delivered uh my daughter sasha which is pretty rare uh you generally don't get your actual ob to deliver your child for you it's just the way that those hospitals are set up uh but she like a nurse was commenting in the room and I was like in active labor and she was like, yeah, this like the calmest patient I've ever had. My doctor who knew all about my bipolar diagnosis and, and my struggles with like anxiety and stuff. She was like, are you calm? Or are you just acting calm? And I was like, yeah, it's all a lie. I'm dying inside. And she's like, that's what I thought. <laughs> it was just like that little bit of validation is all I needed to get through that moment while I'm. Yeah buckled over because you know i'm in the middle of a contraction too and everything sucks <laughs> that's like, i mean i just i just love you know you found a winner where they can just kind of like call you out in the nicest way possible yeah you know it's just like is this all an act yeah it is yeah. <laughs> but also in those situations it's kind of like you, you can either it's kind of not fight or flight but like survive or die kind of yeah um you just kind of like Again, you know, anxiety is that fight or flight response yeah. just on all the time, right? So you're just yeah. like, 
oh, I can finally put this to use. I'm well-versed in this. Let's go, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> yeah, it was like, well, I can't escape the pain, at least not yet, because I can't get that epidural quite yet. Mm-hmm. So what's the point in freaking out about it? I mean, I freak yeah. out going to the grocery store. This is nothing new. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's when I know what to expect that everything's okay. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Ex- it's like, this the- is supposed to hurt, so the pain is a good thing. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. And I would say it's a very different pain to like, I've never broken a bone, but I can't imagine that feels super great after the shock wears off and you're like, oh shit, that hurts a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was very young when I broke a bone, and that's the only time I've ever done it. I think the shock was the only thing that terrified me. Like, once the shock wore off, I don't really remember pain. I remember just being like, this sucks. I can't move my arm. That sucks. This is terrifying, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I don't recall you, like, acting in pain pain either until, like, after the surgery when you were in a cast, which casts suck, so. Yeah. Yeah. It was so stinky. Oh, God, it was really stinky. (laughs) (laughs) Weren't you one of those, like, um, didn't you try to shove pencils down there to scratch it, too, which you're definitely not supposed to do? Or did mom yell at you too much and and you didn't do it? uh, You know, ADHD, if you want to do something, if you have an impulse to do something, you're going to do it regardless (laughs) of uh, what's standing in your way. Um, I, I, I can't remember, but I'm sure I did. Probably. I, because, I feel like I remember rulers. I think you found like one of those plastic yeah. semi-bendy rulers and you were shoving it down yep. there. Which the trick that about those was they had, the, they had the raised edges, you know, so oh. that they could really actually itch. Nice. I feel like a pencil, you've got like that pinpoint, so that's not going to do you much good. But with the raised edges of those little plastic bendy rulers, not only are they maneuverable, but they're going to provide a little bit of that like repetitive friction so they'll actually get a good itch in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. These are the thoughts and fifth grade <laughs> with a broken arm. <laughs> well, but again, I, I think I steered you off your uh, course there. I apologize for that. Oh, that's fine. I was pretty much done. I think, I mean, like, um, yeah, I wasn't planning on going on a full in-depth analysis of bipolar disorder or whatever else we were talking about before this. I don't even remember entirely, but. Um, yeah, I think you were just explaining, just giving a, a sort of like overview of bipolar. Yeah, so like mania is more like everything is to the extreme, whether it's, you know, happiness, irritability is a really big symptom. A lot of people gloss over. Um, I follow bipolar subreddits on the good old Reddit machine. And um, so I read a lot of like people when they first get diagnosed and they're like, is this symptom bipolar disorder? It's like, yes, yeah, it is. <laughs> some of them are super <laughs> yeah. obvious and some of them are the more insidious things that you would never really consider to be bipolar disorder, like getting a song stuck in your head for six days to the point where it's just kind of actually driving you crazy. Insidious uh-huh. thoughts. Yeah, not just an earworm. Um, or like, yeah, uh, irritability is a big one. Some people would be like, I just snapped at my boyfriend for no reason. Is is Could this be a symptom of bipolar disorder? And people are like, well, it kind of sounds like you were just in a, you know, whatever. And then they give a few more details. They're like, yeah, my boyfriend like put their spoon down wrong and I like laid out on him. It's like, yeah, that sounds more like you're a little hypomanic. You should call your doctor if, if your meds aren't working. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, like, again, you know, everybody gets annoyed, but if you, uh, you know, threaten to break their Xbox just because they put their spoon down wrong, you might be looking at something a little bit more intense than um, Mm -hmm. a bad day. Mm 
yeah, the reaction to the thoughts you have generally lead you to yeah. have, yeah, an actual mental illness. And uh, so I guess, yeah, so that might be as kind of a good thing to talk about too, where there's, there's sort of two ways to look about um, your responses to outside, you know, your reactions to things um, and how, and how to sort of evaluate them if you think you might be, uh, you might want to look into, you know, having a mental health evaluation. First off, I'd say if you're sitting there wondering if you need a mental health evaluation, go get one. Yeah. Um, you know, I, most people who are in that state, uh, you know, they probably are there for a reason. Um, you should never feel like you should never let the thought that it's nothing. I'm just having a bad day. Stop you. Um, because if it's something that you are really concerned about, uh, then you should certainly get it looked at. Um, now you might just be having a bad day (laughs) and that's totally acceptable. And if the doctor says so, then nine times out of 10, you can trust that. Um, but you know, if, if, uh, if it's something that's really plaguing you and you're like, is this something, is this nothing? If you really have that thought and you have it for a while, certainly go talk to someone. Um, you can, you know, reach out to, uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, psychiatrists typically are the ones who are going to handle more medication based, um, uh, sort of approaches. So typically by the time you're seeing a psychiatrist, it's more, um, it's going to be a quick diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then they're going to be like, take these pills. Um, so I would maybe not recommend starting with a psychiatrist. Now, if that's where you end up or if that's where you want to start, I'm not going to say that's wrong. Um, I will say in my personal experience, starting somewhere with like a psychologist or a therapist, you'll probably get a little further. And if you think that what you're dealing with might need to be medicated, then, you know, you'll probably end up seeing a psychiatrist at some point. Yeah. Um, uh- there, there are plenty of avenues to take, um, but don't be afraid of the system because in most of my experiences, if you just get in to see someone, um, if they end up not being the right person to talk to, <laughs> then they will point you in the right direction most of the time. Yeah. Sometimes you might end up you know, having a bad experience with someone. Um, just find another avenue if you don't feel comfortable with the people you're talking to. Um, just, you know, if you maybe make a list of names um, of doctors at your, you know, in your network, if you will. And if the first one doesn't work out, just schedule, you know, an appointment with the next one until you find someone who you feel comfortable with talking, talking to about this stuff, or you feel like is taking your, you know, taking your, your, desires into account like you know just really you feel like they care yeah Um, like i think well we've both seen a couple different therapists now in our lifetimes um mm -hmm. i've gone through the whole process multiple times um for the most part when you call i i always recommend trying to find an actual mental health clinic if you're going there for mental health you certainly can go to your general practitioner your primary care physician and say I have this issue but they just don't have the time to dedicate to truly understanding your entire situation Uh, they're there the the hospitals just are not set up to facilitate the proper care in that way nothing against 
general practitioners in any way. They're fighting the system just as much as anybody else is. Uh, Absolutely. But I recommend finding a mental health clinic. Start with who does your insurance carry? When you've narrowed down that list, almost any therapist, psychologist, psychiatrist will have a little bio about themselves. Read those bios. Try to find someone that you think you will agree with on a personal level. And then look at their specialties. Do they specialize in marriages? Do they specialize in children? That doesn't mean they won't see you if you aren't a child or you aren't even married. But that can help you get a better idea of how is this person going to be able to help me? And then, yeah, just look at their personality. Like, you you can glean a little bit of information from those bios. They're not, you know, five-page essays. But, oh, this person's got a degree in music as well as psychology. I'm really passionate about music. Maybe I can help connect myself to this therapist and really relate to them as a person and open up easier when I know I have this connection with somebody. They want to feel human to you just as much as you want them to feel human to you. So, Yeah, certainly. I mean, you make a good point too, where um, I I chalk it up to like just the strict, uh, you know, level of people, like the amount of people coming into a uh, a general care clinic, even if they have these departments that are set up um, with uh, you know with behavioral health behavioral health wards and or or just like uh, specialty Practices, centers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, just because they're typically the one that most people will start with, they're very often bogged down, and so sometimes you may not get that personal touch. That really, really goes a long way in making you feel like you're getting the help that you need and that the people helping you really care about you. So it is, I I would second uh, Amanda's recommendation on trying to find a more mental health focused uh, institution um, and starting there. Now, if that be- is becomes too spendy, then maybe once you've had a little time there, you can certainly go to your uh, general practice clinic once you have a better understanding of where you're coming from and what sort of what they have sort of diagnosed you with, and you can take that to with you to the general care clinic, and then um, you'll kind of you you know just you know understand that they it's not that they don't care about you, it's that they have a lot more people to care about, so maybe they can't spend as much time or be as personable as the uh as the specialty center was in the first place but i mean at that point typically i mean uh, this is sort of the experience i've had where i i needed a more affordable solution so i switched from uh the specialty clinic that i was going to to the uh general care clinic and um once i kind of knew where, what my diagnosis was i was able to bring that with me um, they certainly wanted to, you know, follow it up and make sure that, uh, you know, that they agreed with uh, what what I had learned or had been diagnosed with from my former clinic. Uh, and they did. And so it was, it's just been a quick, easy, you know, I have a, a check in every so often with my psychiatrist and they just, you know, I'm just getting my medication from them at this point. And that's just where I'm at. And I couldn't be happier. So yeah. Everyone's going to have a different journey. Everyone's going to have different experiences. Um, I just think that uh, the first step is the hardest. 
And I think that that's mostly true because a lot of people are very concerned about either getting lost in the system or, um, you know, just the whole process being inaffordable or not worth the time or just not you end up not getting the help that you think you need or whatever the case may be. And so I just want, you know, I just wanted to perhaps provide some options as to how to get started and hopefully make it a little less scary of an experience. And an insight into the process as a whole, because there's certainly, if you Google how to get a therapist, there's really not a lot out there to actually give some insight into what to expect. Yeah, there's really not. Yeah. I I mean, yeah, I I think there was, I, that's what stopped me for a long time was I always like to get as much information before going into something as possible. And I just couldn't, I just, nothing I ever read had ever really made me feel like I was confident that I wouldn't mess up the steps needed to get me to where I wanted to be. Yeah. And it, it's always a little scary if you go in scary if you go in there saying, I want medication because they're gonna think you're seeking medication and yeah. in, in the way of like abusing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean like if I, I don't know why I was afraid because it's not like anybody goes in and goes, I want antipsychotic, please, for abuse reasons. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would like to abuse Wellbutrin. Yeah, I've I've heard it's the new party drug. <laughs> Said nobody ever. Yeah, yeah, you know those parties in those really quiet coffee shops where everyone just kind of sips their non-caffeinated tea and thinks about their day. Because <laughs> caffeine might give them a hypomanic episode, and they can't yeah. afford that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. my medication that I was on before I got pregnant, if I took too much of it, I could get meningitis and die. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to be abusing that one either. So sometimes you <laughs> <laughs> my point being, yeah, um, your fears are valid, but at the end of the day, maybe evaluate what kind of drugs are they going to give me anyway? Do I need to be afraid of actually being considered a drug seeker in the first place? Mm-hmm. And also, yeah, if you're going through a mental health practice, um, I think they can probably spot you from a mile away if you're just trying yeah. to get help. So yeah. <laughs> if you're yeah. not I, good friends. I remember one of my first talks with my therapist. Um, I, you know, I kind of was, that was my biggest concern was like, because my case was a little interesting. Um, uh, I, basically, I just barely qualified for ADHD. Um, I was just so, you know, worried about the fact that like, maybe I was lying to myself. I don't actually have ADHD. I just really like the stimulant effect. And, you know, she, you know, talking to my therapist about that really, you know, you pulled me away from those thoughts and just made me feel better about it. But like, yeah, I mean, that's certainly something, I mean, ADHD medication is one of those that is, uh, it's a stimulant. It's, it's, uh, it's got a propensity for abuse. Like, like you said, you have to go through a few more checks and balances just to get the medication than I do. Certainly. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I'm very happy for that. I think that's a great thing because, uh, it, it talking to the therapist and she was like, okay, uh, you know, she took my side on that where it was like, um, maybe you are just sort of a medication seeker. She said, I don't think you are. Everything you've told me, I don't think you are, but let's, let's explore that for a little bit. How does it make you feel? And then I just kind of described it and she's like, yeah, it doesn't make people without ADHD feel like that. This is how they feel. And I was like, that's how I feel normally. And she's like, yeah, you need it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so 
it, it, that's certainly, it's nice to have multiple people to talk to in this case, like a psychiatrist and a therapist where they're coming at you from a lot of different angles on far as far as like making sure you get the help you need and making sure that, you know, you're not doing too much or too little, you know, they really want to make sure that your normal life isn't being interfered with too much. Um, but you know, just enough to make it feel normal. Right. So yeah, it's for as, as much as this podcast is kind of talking about all the ways that mental illness is treated poorly. There are certainly a lot of folks in the medical, uh, profession that really recognize sort of that, that, you know, the bad ways that mental illness has been treated and they are doing everything in their power to make sure that that's not happening. So these are people you can trust. Um, these are folks who really want to help you. Uh, and again, it's just like any sort of, um, health, healthcare problem that you have, you know, be it physical or mental, they're going to, you know, be very careful and safe, but make sure that you get the help that you need. I remembered what I was going to say off of piggybacking off of what you said, like, I don't know, 20 minutes ago, (laughs) (laughs) but in the same way that you would get, you're told to get a funny mole checked go get your weird mood things checked or that weird, those weird reactions you have. Or if you hear from your friends a lot, like, Oh, haha, well, they're just funny at parties. It's like, mm-hmm. mm. <laughs> how are they funny at those parties? Is that just because like, maybe you're a little manic when you get drunk or, you know, uh, yeah, whatever yeah. the case may be. If you think you need to see somebody, just go see somebody because that mole may mm-hmm. be benign, but it could also be cancer and your yeah. freakouts could actually be a symptom of a much more serious problem. And the sooner you can get yeah. even just talk therapy, you know, it doesn't have to be a medication. It can just be. Oh yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. But just awareness around what your body is going through and your mind and your feelings is a great place to start no matter where you are at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Last thing I'd like to say about that is um, if you think there might be something wrong with you, but it, you don't think it's really interfering with your life, I'm not saying you have to get checked for that or look into it. I would recommend it personally. But if it's if you don't think it's interfering with your life, I don't th- and you don't want to go through the process. I don't think anyone should judge you for that either. I, you know, yeah. again, these are personal choices. Um my my whole reason for sort of you know putting this out there is to just sort of make it less of a stigma to you know help those who are seeking for it but certainly not to um insist that every single person in the world should get a mental health check especially if they don't think they need it yeah. um <laughs> there are certainly some cases where you might not think you need it and the people around you do and um, in those cases, yeah, I would say maybe go get checked. Yeah. But if if no one is, you know, causing a fuss about the way you are and you don't think there's anything wrong with you or you think there might be something a little bit off, but nothing serious. That's your call. You know, I'm not going to I'm not going to sit here and try to and try to, you know, say, any, you know, put you down for your choices in that regard. That's certainly not the uh, not the procedure I'm trying to take here. Yeah. Well, all right. I think that's uh, that's all I have to say. That's a wrap. Well, all right. what have you been up to this week? You feeling better from COVID? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, some of the systems lingered a little bit. Uh, still feel a little stuffy, but overall, uh, much, much better. Um, other than that, honestly, not really a whole heck of a lot. Got back to work after being out for over a week, uh, which was nice. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I guess um been watching a lot of TV. I still, I guess... I shouldn't say stuffy is the only thing I feel. I feel a little bit extra tired too, but um, yeah, yeah. I think uh, you know the energy's picking back up too, and uh, yeah, that's all. That's all I've been doing. How about yourself? Oh yeah, started that new job, which is a little bit draining. But um, we did. Uh, we dropped the kid off with um, my dad and family, and overnight which was the first time we let Sasha stay with somebody overnight it was a little made me a little sad but we got to celebrate our wedding anniversary me and Josh two whole years yeah, yeah so that's exciting congratulations Why, i guess i never you. never really said congratulations or oh. happy anniversary so uh, you know, let me just do it publicly <laughs> here real quick i honestly don't like it when other people congratulate us like oh congrats you did it two years good for you cuz the way i see it and i'm i think i'm um pretty much in the minority on this but like yeah but it's my marriage with my husband so why are you involving yourself which i know that's not (laughs) what they mean but (laughs) yeah yeah. um so it's okay it's okay that you did not congratulate us Um, (laughs) we went out to a delicious restaurant in minneapolis called pizzeria lola because we got covid two months ago i felt very safe getting out there like you know even if i was exposed i wasn't going to get sick again so that was kind of a breath of fresh air Got tipsy. We got Ubers. Well, not two Ubers. We got one Uber because we're married and live in the same house. <laughs> <laughs> is, this, is this the year of twos where you have to do everything in twos? No. We got to get year, two Ubers. 2022. Two, two beds. In the second month. No, not two beds. <laughs> That's why I got a king bed. So there's oh, two sides of the bed. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, but that's that's been about it. Trying to adjust to a new job and come home and not be a brain dead zombie after a long day. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but it's been good. Yeah, that's good. I was going to ask about Sasha too about how you felt uh, her being out for the night. I mean, you said sad. Was that? I mean, is sad really the best way to describe it? Or is there more to that? Bitter, or? Bit, bittersweet. It was really nice having a break, and I think I slept more in that night than I have in a long time. <laughs> She sleeps pretty good these days, but she's still up at least once a night, most nights. And yeah, it just gets a little draining. It was just nice for both of us to get a good night's sleep and not feel that little lingering bitterness of, well, you got to sleep through the night, but I'm dead tired. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I mean, it's tough because, like, I think I still woke up several times throughout the night for short amounts of time going, oh, God, where's my baby? Is she dead? Because I haven't heard, like, cough or cry or anything. You're just conditioned to it a little now, yeah. Yeah. Little Sasha. And she was teething, and I felt bad. Oh, I I wasn't there to hold her, but she survived perfect time to pawn him off on the grandparents so you know <laughs> the little jerk she slept from 7 p.m to 7 a.m straight no wake-ups no. on the one night she's with somebody else i was a little pissed <laughs> god damn it love you sasha yeah, <laughs> yeah she's great yeah i miss her so much oh. i was so i was so sad we got we missed that table burning 
Oh, yeah. Our, our Viking send-off to our old dining room table. <laughs> so good. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I didn't really give it that much thought, you know, becoming an uncle or like all these, uh, you know, they were getting to the age where a lot of babies are popping up in the family. And, you know, I, I certainly didn't think I was going to hate the kids or anything like that. (laughs) I just didn't give too much thought to like how much I really like enjoy being around Sasha, I guess. And, you know, uh, my, uh, my brother-in-law's children as well, you know, it's like, I just, I guess I'm a little surprised by how much I, I enjoy that uncle presence. You know, I'm a little surprised how much I enjoy being a mom, so I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just don't yeah. really know at the end of the day how you're going to react to being a parent. Mm-hmm. Although we, mm-hmm. we chose to be parents, it wasn't necessarily a surprise. It was a little earlier than we were expecting. And sure. so, I, I mean... Josh and I both went through a pretty strong adjustment period to just like, oh crap, we're going to be parents. And but yeah, I, every day since she's been born, it has been pretty fantastic. So mm-hmm. no, no regrets. She's the cutest. Yeah. Well, it does help. Yeah, she's just the stinking cutest. Oh, she's the cutest. Oh, I miss Sasha. <laughs> All right. Well, any f- yeah. final thoughts? Um. Uh, I guess not really. I hope everyone's safe and uh, taking care of themselves. Um, staying warm if you're in cold weather or staying cold if you're in hot weather. <laughs> uh, I just hope everyone's just doing good. You can find us uh, on crimesagainstmentality.com where, again, we'll get some resources posted for helping people who have been abused by the system as well as uh, mental health resources in general through a Get Help link. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram at, uh, what's that? Uh, Crimes Against Mental Pod on Instagram. You can also find us on Twitter and on Facebook. Can't say we'll post a lot on there about our personal lives because we're both pretty much um, neutral or negative towards social media, but we will be releasing episode information on those platforms. And mm-hmm. uh, that's a wrap. Good night, everybody. Sleep tight. 